want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to read from verses 1 through 4. And if you have a pen, and if you don't mind marking in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that. I'd also encourage you to jot down on a little note, encourage you to jot down a few scriptures today. Isaiah chapter 43, we're talking about who do you think you are? And we're talking about discovering our true identity in Christ. So Isaiah chapter 43, starting at verse 1, says this. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Notice these words. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And he says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Verse 4. I want to encourage you to pull out your pen, your highlighter, and underline this. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Father, we pray that you would add a blessing to the reading of your word. I pray that you would open up our hearts and open up our understanding so that we can both discern and receive your truth today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking today about who do you think you are, discovering your true identity. And I want to show to the person next to you and say, I am significant. Tell them again and say, I am significant. What does the word significant mean? It means having value, worthy of note or consideration, especially for its interest, value, or relevance. Significance also means high ranking with high social position or influence among people. Maybe when we talk about significant, maybe what we should really talk about being insignificant. Well, what does the word insignificant mean? It means to be unimportant, irrelevant, immaterial, inconsequential, trivial, minor, of no consequence. Listen to this. Too small and unimportant to be relevant. Having little or no meaning and powerless. Now, whenever a pastor or an evangelist or a preacher speaks to you, there's some things that we can speak from from a place of victory. There's things that you can say, I've been through this, I've experienced this, and I know that God is real. You can stay on something because God's done a work in you, and you know it's done. There's other times that things that we speak, the things that we're speaking are things that God is actually doing inside of us at that moment. There's things where we can talk about it, but we really don't have it down. We really haven't conquered it, but we know that that's what God's Word says. Today, I believe that's the place where I speak to you from today. As someone who, this is something that God is trying to work out in my heart and in my life. I wrote down, I mean, that's one of the greatest gifts I've been given in my life was that portion of Scripture from my mom. As far back as I can remember, my mom would quote that scripture to me, and she would tell me 
how when she was pregnant with me, Mom would say, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, you're mine. That was the verse that my mom spoke over me. But that was the verse that God gave to my mom. She had another name picked out for me. She was going to call me Greg. One time she was praying, and I'm not sure if it was in a dream or if it was in a vision. As she was praying, God began to show her and give her this scripture about me. And so she changed the name, and she named me Stephen instead. That means crown born. I don't know all the implications of that. But there was always something, you know, I, the home I grew up in, mom and dad did the right thing. Terry and Johnny did the right thing. And I had this period of time in my life where I didn't know, I didn't think it was possible for me to serve the Lord. You know how you think there's some people who are, well, yeah, they can do it, but probably not me. Because I honestly wanted to serve the Lord. But whenever I tried, I did not have inside of me. I couldn't carry out the things that I felt like God asked me to do. I couldn't live up to the things, the examples that I saw. And so I remember there being a period in my life where I just thought, I must be doomed for hell. But I still remember Mom saying those scriptures about, fear not, for I redeemed you. I called you by name. You're mine. And somehow those verses had a way of, Offering me some degree of hope in my hopeless feeling and hopeless situation in my heart. The enemy wants you to feel insignificant. The enemy loves it whenever you feel insignificant or unworthy to come into God's presence or even to be a part of the church, his family. He loves it whenever you feel, I'm not good enough. I think there's a lot of people who. When they talk about the church, it's not that they don't want to follow God. It's not that they don't want to serve God. But they're overwhelmed by this sense of, who am I? I'm not good enough to come to God. But there's a lot of people who have that sense of, I'm not good enough to come to God. I'm not good enough to be a part of a church. And so many times they'll say, well, if there's something good I can do around the church, I'll be happy to come in and volunteer in some way. But I'm not good enough to come in and find a seat. I'm not good enough to really be a part. If you knew who I am, if you really knew what I've done, if you knew what I struggle with, he wouldn't accept me. And neither would all of those good people there because that's not me. That's what the enemy wants people to believe. That's what he wants them to think. And so he keeps people oftentimes away from God and away from his church because he has them believing these lies about themselves. And then people begin to get resentful because when you're insignificant, when you don't matter, it starts to build up resentment toward other people. Sometimes resentment towards God. Resentment towards religious people or church people because I'm not good enough. I'm not important enough. I don't have enough value. I'm not worthy. So I know where I will be worthy. I know where I will be accepted. The young lady isn't good enough to be in church. The young girl, but she'll find some young man who will accept her. He'll say she's important. And so people do so many different things to be worthy. We work real hard. We think if I'm successful on my job, then I'll be significant. If I build my business, if I build my business, if I start with nothing and build a successful business, then I will be important. If 
if I get a promotion, if I complete my degrees, if I get the awards, then I'll be significant. If I hang out with the right people, the in crowd, with certain people who are important, then I'll finally feel important. If I look good, if my family looks good, if our house is nice enough, if I'm successful enough, then I'll finally be significant. But I want you to know that that's not the way God feels. He says you're significant before you're born. He says you're important because you belong to Him, because you're His. He doesn't say you're significant because of the things you've accomplished. You're already significant to Him. Whether or not you accomplish those things really doesn't matter. But He has created you for good works, and so those things are going to flow out of who you are because you're a person of great value. You're a person of great worth. You're a person whose God's anointing is resting upon. His call is resting upon you. So those things will be a natural outflow. And I was thinking about it, I was thinking, the best example I could think of this would be found in the book of Luke. The story of the prodigal son. Because this story shows the heart of the father. Jesus tells us this parable to show us the heart of the father towards his children. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 15, you know the story. A young man comes to his father, and he says to his father, Hey, Dad, give me my inheritance. For him to do this, it was a huge insult to the father and to the family. He was, in essence, saying publicly, I wish you were dead. Give me what belongs to me. His father gave him what he wanted, and the young man went away and wasted all of his father's money, partying. He was out partying, that's what he did. Wine, women, and song. Well, as usually happens, he ended up with nothing. And he's starving. He squandered what his father had given him. And he ends up getting a job feeding the pigs. And you have to understand what an insult that was. When Jesus tells this story, you have to understand how insulting, how low he's saying this guy went, okay? For a Jewish boy to be feeding the pigs, you have to understand, he's saying he went so low and he becomes so desperate that all he wants to do, what he longs for, is to eat the pigs' food. Now the scripture says this, at some point he came to himself. Now one commentator said this, he says, he came to himself which suggests that up to this point, he had not really been himself. There is an insanity in sin that seems to paralyze the image of God within us and liberate the animal that is inside. I'll say that again. There is an insanity in sin that seems to paralyze the image of God because you and I were created in His image and in his likeness. A lot of times people will say, well, he looks like his dad. He looks like his mom. The reality of it is, is you and I were created in the image of God himself. That when God looks at you and he looks at me, he's able to see a reflection of himself. That's how we were created. That's how we were designed. We're not designed in the image of our parents. We are designed in the image of God himself. We're not something that's 
So as the father runs to his son, the father sees him from a long distance, he's moved with compassion, and he runs to him. He is not only expressing his love for him, he's also covering him so that if anyone would pick up a stone, if the neighbors were ready and they said, there he is, throughout the Old Testament, there were numerous times. Remember, whenever the people were being immoral, he picked up the uh, the sword. The people were being immoral, he picked up the sword and went into the tent and drove it right through them. And God ceased because the plague ceased. So there would have been people who would have thought in their mind, we're doing God a favor. We're doing this family, we're doing this community a favor. If we stone this young man, the father runs to him and protects him and covers him. So if anyone throws a stone at him, it would hit the father. Much like what Jesus did upon the cross of Calvary, when he took your sin and mine upon that tree, when he bore that punishment for you and for I, the Father didn't let him complete his sentence, those rehearsed lines. He stops him in mid-sentence and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The father shows honor to the son. The ring was a sign of sonship. And the best robe, no doubt the father's robe, was proof of his acceptance back into the family. Servants did not wear rings, shoes, or expensive garments. The feast was the father's way of showing his joy and sharing it with the whole community. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not embarrassed about you. I'm not angry at what you've done. They may say, well, he's wasted. He's squandered all of your riches, all you've worked for all your life. How can you not be bitter or angry at him or disappointed with him? And the feast and the celebration was the father's way of saying, my son is more important to me than any of those other things. I'm just glad that my son who was lost is found. I'm glad he's back. Let's just celebrate. I don't want to look back on the past. I don't want to point a finger any longer. The feast was the father's way of sharing his joy. Had the boy been dealt with according to the law, there would have been a funeral that day, not a feast. Jesus tells this story to show us how God feels about us. People go to all kinds of all ends to find significance. Through the things they possess, through the people they know, through the goals they accomplish, through how they appear. It's amazing. They think, if I'm able to, you know, you fill in the blank. If I'm able to, if I'm able to accomplish this goal, then I'll be significant. If I'm able to get a relationship with this person, then I'll be significant. If I'm able to amass these things and possess these things, then I'll be significant. If I'm able to reach these goals, then I'll be significant. All the while not realizing that they were significant before they were ever born. That none of those things are necessary. That God has already established their value and their worth. That before God, they are anything. They are anything but too small or unimportant. They are anything but having little or no meaning, and they are anything but powerless. Here's the reality. You're significant. God knows the numbers of hair on your head. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, it says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will 
is what it says. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You are so significant to God that he knows the most intimate details about you. Who would take the time to count the hairs on your head? But the Bible says that God knows the very number of hair on your head. If some fall out in the shower tonight when you take your shower, that God knows that count. He knows, he knows those intimate details about you. Do you realize that you are the temple and that God's spirit dwells inside of you? I want you to hear that. The Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple. And God's spirit dwells inside of you. Oftentimes people will often say, and we pray this, we pray this over our church and over the property and over the pews. We pray that as people come in, they will sense the presence of God. Whenever the temple was dedicated, you remember in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple, it says that the glory of the Lord descended upon the place, and the glory was so heavy that the priests could not fulfill their duties because the glory of the Lord was just so powerful that they couldn't even move in God's presence. I want you to understand this. As anointed as a place could be, you are much more anointed than that. Because every place that you go, every place that Mike drives that truck, he is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In every warehouse that he walks in, he takes the presence of Almighty God into that place. Things in the Spirit begin to change because the presence of God dwells inside of you. Every place that Rodney goes out, Monday through Friday, place that he goes in, he takes with him the anointing, the power, the very presence of God himself dwells inside of him. So when he walks into that place, God is going into that place. When Lori goes to the Calico School District Monday through Friday, when she walks into that classroom, you know what's happening? The Spirit of God is invading that classroom. Why? Because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and His Spirit dwells inside of you. So every place that you go will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, because where light goes, darkness has to flee. So when you walk into your home, listen to me. You may have a difficult home life, but when you walk in there, the presence of God, the Spirit of God is full in you. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost wherever you go. We say, well, we got to get the people into the church. No, all we need to do is get the church, the people, into the presence of the unsaved, the ungodly, and the atmosphere changes because God is inside of you. Because God is inside of you, He dwells inside of you. So, in the middle of the winter, when Conrad's up on the roof, you know what? The presence of God is in that crew. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of you. Wherever you go, you transform the atmosphere because the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost. Second Corinthians 5 and 6 says that I am Christ's ambassador, and I have been given a ministry of reconciliation. It says that I am God's co-worker. I'm his co-worker. Think about that. I'm not just a servant. I'm his co-laborer. I'm heirs with God. And the Bible says that you're joint heirs with Christ. Everything that's available to Christ is available to you. You are joint heir with Christ. And so whenever you go into a place, we have, the, once again, 
15, verse 16. I want to remind you, this is what Jesus said. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. You were chosen by God and you were appointed to bear fruit. Sometimes people think, well, you know, I chose God. I was thinking, do I want Buddha? Do I want money? Or do I want Jesus? No. He chose you. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. You did find him. Oh, man, I'm glad you found him. found the Lord. No, friend, he found you. He came looking for you. He was on a mission to redeem you. He knew you before you were ever born, before you were even conceived. He knew who you were, and he knew what you'd be, and he put a seal. The Bible says he puts a seal on us, that we're his. We belong to him. So it don't really matter what anybody else says. What's he say about you? He says, you're mine. I've chosen you. I've chased after you. I've pursued you. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is something that's already happened now. This is where you are at now. You are seated. God raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You're God's workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. A lot of times people will say about themselves, they'll be very critical of themselves. Can you imagine going to like an art show or seeing some work that someone has done and looking at it and saying, eh, I don't see what everybody sees in that, not realizing that you're saying it in front of the person who did that. You'd be embarrassed and you'd be, you'd be like, oh, man, I should have kept my mouth shut. Well, again and again, you know what men and women do? They criticize the work of God because you are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece. God is your creator. He is your designer. He knew you before you were ever born. He's the one who created. Listen to what the scripture says. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are not his handiwork because we do good works. A lot of people think that they get it reversed. They think if I do good works, then I'm God's masterpiece. I'm his handiwork. No, you are in advance. You are his masterpiece. You are his handiwork. The way he created you. You may say, I wish he had made me, and you can fill in the blank how you wish he had made you different. And when you do that, you're really insulting God. Because he has designed you with a purpose and with a plan. As a result of that, as a result of his work, he's created us for good works. You can come to God with confidence. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be embarrassed. One of the greatest things the enemy tries to do is to cause people to think God is always mad at you and disappointed with you. That you never measure up. How many of you like to be around people who are mad at you? They just know, you know, I'm really ticked off at you. I think you're just a real jerk. Why don't you come over for dinner? You're like, oh. You hear someone saying mean things about you. They say they hate you. They're disappointed. You know, you're just the biggest failure. Come over for dinner. You're like, I don't want to go over for dinner. I don't want to be around that person. 
I want to avoid that person. And that's what Satan does to many people. He causes them to be afraid to come into God's presence. Because surely God knows all about me. I disappoint myself, so surely I disappoint him. You don't understand the heart of the Father. Finally, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friend, you're significant. You're significant not because of what you've done. You're significant not because of what you possess. You're significant not because of your skills and your abilities or what you have done. You're significant because before you were ever born, God knew you. And he called you by name. He said, he's mine. She's mine. Parents, how many of you remember the day when your child was born? And the first time that you laid eyes on them. I remember standing at Lancaster General and seeing Logan and Landon for the first time. And Lori, as soon as Lori hears their cry, she starts crying. And the tears run down my face. And I'm like, oh, beautiful. I can't believe I can possibly love somebody so much the first time I lay eyes on him. I didn't know. There was something that's transformed. I did not know that you could love somebody so much that you never saw before, but they were mine. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's God's heart towards you. He's not disappointed with you. He's not angry with you. His heart is for you. You are significant and you are of value to him because you belong to him. Because he's created you. He is your father. You don't have to do all these other things to be of value. You already are. Who am I? I'm significant to God. I'm not someone who's irrelevant. I'm not someone who's small. I'm not someone who's forsaken. I'm someone who's precious and honored in God's sight. And I'm going to get that from our head down to our hearts. I want to God to affirm to you. Because this is God's word for you. I know what God's word is to you today. His word to you today is that you are anything but insignificant. You're someone of great value, of great honor, of great price. You're someone who's elevated. You're someone who's special. You're somebody who's important. You may say, but nobody else sees it or nobody else knows it. But God does. He's the one who establishes your value. I believe that around our altars, God will affirm to some people. He'll make it real to some people. You don't have to keep performing. But they love you. I just believe he wants to heal some people's hearts. And settle some issues just once and for all. Just once and for all. Father, I pray that as we open up our altars, I ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to the hearts and to the minds of your people. I ask you, Father, that you would make known to them that they are, they're yours. And the love that I have for my daughter, Logan, and my son, Landon, when I saw them, you had for us when before time you saw us. And you knew us. And you called us to yourself. So I pray, God, as we open these orders, that you would speak, Lord, and that you would touch and you would minister. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.